We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together to study your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us great promises, including protection, even in the midst of trial and tribulation. And so as we look here at the ceiling of these 144,000, Lord, we know that we are promised protection from this entire time, but we still marvel at the fact that you're able to sovereignly protect your own. And so we give you glory and honor today for that. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Open our minds, help us to think well upon your text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we're coming into the seventh chapter here of the book of Revelation. And remember last time at the sixth seal, when we had left off, we had seen God's wrath poured out in those cosmic disturbances. Well, now this time we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 7, where John in Revelation is going to show us further wrath that's going to come. But before this wrath that comes, there's an interlude. And the interlude is basically a pause where believers are going to be sealed for protection, particularly the 144,000, and that's the interlude that we're going to be coming to. So it is a pause in the transition to further wrath that is going to have a marked increase in intensity. So think about when we get to Revelation chapter 7, there's two groups that are going to be referred to, two different servant groups. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 is going to be referring to the servants of God, the 144,000, that is the servants in Israel. Well, then when you get to verses 9 through 17, the focus is on the servants servants of God that are martyred during the Great Tribulation, and they are primarily from the Gentile nations. And so those two groups are those who God enables to stand. Okay, and I'll explain more about what that means in a moment. So I want to show you these ideas consisting of the interludes and how they form kind of a structure throughout the book of Revelation. First of all, you had Revelation chapter 6, where the first six seals of God's judgment. Now in Revelation 7, we have our first interlude, the sealing of the 144,000. That's the first group of servants. Those are the servants on earth, as it were. And then you have the Gentiles who are being martyred out of the great tribulation. Okay, so that's what the seventh seal is all about. So it's an interlude. Well, then when you get to chapters 8 through 9, you have the seventh seal breaks forth. And remember, anytime you have a seventh, it opens up to the next group of judgments. So the seventh seal opens up to the six trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up to the six bowls. The seventh bowl opens up kind of indefinitely because that brings in the eternal state. That's how the book of Revelation is structured. Then what happens is you're going to have another interlude. So we're going to have three of these rascals all the way through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10 through chapter 11, 13, you have an interlude where you have this little book or scroll, and then you have the two witnesses, remember, like Elijah and Moses, that are going to be preaching the gospel. Well, then you get back to the text. It continues to progress. In Revelation chapter 11, 14 through verse 19, you have the seventh trumpet. And then again, that opens up to the six bowls. And once you know, when you get to the seventh bowl, again, you have an interlude. For some reason, these last two come up together. I don't know how to stop that, so we'll just put them both up. But Revelation 12, 1 through 15, 8, then you have background for the bowl judgments. And then Revelation 16, all the way to the end of the book, you have bowl judgments leading to the kingdom of God. Okay, so notice these set of three interludes. The first two interludes that you have 
on the list there, you still have progression. So think about this. During a football game, when you go from the second quarter, you actually have halftime, right? And then you go to the third quarter. Well, during halftime, if you looked at your watch, time is still going by, but there's an interlude. There's a break. Well, that's the way the first two interludes are. Time is still going forward, but there's an interlude. There's a break in the action. But when you get to the third interlude, notice I say background for the bold judgments. Do you guys remember the saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch? That's the third interlude. The third interlude gives you more information. It brings you all the way back in time to where Satan rebels against God. And it kind of tells you the whole story of God's warfare with Satan all the way to the Great Tribulation. And then it kind of brings you up to speed as to what God will do. So the first two interludes are more of like half times. The third interlude is where he brings you back in time to fill in, okay, this is what it's all about. But nonetheless, you have these three interludes, and they always occur at the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl. So it is a major structure in the book of Revelation. Okay. Now, I also want to deal with what's the purpose of this interlude. Well, first of all, this section answers the question asked in Revelation 6.17. That was the last verse we had in chapter 6. And remember, the unregenerate, all unbelievers had the wrath of God coming upon them in these cosmic disturbances, right? The sun, moon, and stars. Well, they realize it's the wrath of God. Even unbelievers got it. And they ask the question, for the great day of the wrath has come, they say, and who is able to stand? Now, when we get into Revelation chapter 7, it answers that question, who is able to stand? Well, the 144,000 of Israel that are sealed by God. And by the way, um, I don't know, I was going to amend this. It should also add on to that. Remember, chapter 7, first nine verses or eight verses are all about the 144,000. But then in verses 9 through 17, it's about those who are martyred. Those are Christians who are primarily Gentiles who are taken out of the Great Tribulation. They're also able to stand. So uh, maybe add that in your notes. It's not just the 144,000, but it's all those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's who's able to stand in the day of God's wrath. Now, we also have another timing indicator, and these are important to point out because it makes us realize that time is still going forward, and there is still a progression in the scheme of the book of Revelation. So, for example, Revelation 7.1, notice the after this. So John is seeing this, and he knows that what he's seeing is occurring after the seal judgments of Revelation 6. After this, he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, does ever, anybody remember the programmatic verse to the book of Revelation? The Revelation 119 is the programmatic verse. It's the structure of it. Revelation 119, remember, John says he's going to write about the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are going to come and take place after this. Well, what we learn then is everything from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to Revelation 22 are in the future. And we saw that timing indicator when he said, after these things I looked and behold. So the point is these timing indicators are important because they show us progression throughout the book of Revelation. So certainly we're still progressing in time through the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, that's another thing I think we can conclude from this. Now, let's begin, though, by reading the text here. We'll begin just in verse 1. Revelation 7, 1, John writes, After this I saw four angels 
standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Notice the threefold repetition of four. There's a threefold repetition of four, which seems to indicate a completeness or a universality of the control that these angels have over the creation. And obviously the control over creation was given to them by God. And so they are the ones then that control whether or not wrath continues to be poured out or not. Now, the four winds, what's very interesting is the Hebrews had in their minds that the four winds, when they are from the north, east, west, and south, they would bring good fortune from God. I don't mean fortune in the sense of luck, but the idea of blessing. Okay, so they'd bring blessing from God, but when they came from the southeast or the northwest, those four corners, it was bringing wrath. Well, certainly the way the four corners are functioning here, the four winds, they're functioning in Revelation 7 to bring wrath. That's how we should understand it. And there's Old Testament background for that. For example, Jeremiah chapter 49. Now, I'm going to read this, then I'm going to talk about the background to it, and I'll show you how it relates to Revelation. Listen to what the Lord said to Elam. By the way, does anyone know where Elam is today? Well, Elam is, what's that? Uh, Very close, yes, Iran, southwest part of Iran. Very close, exactly right. So this is dealing with Iran, in, in a sense, back in the days around 600 B.C. Jeremiah 49, 36 through 37, the Lord says, I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of heaven and will scatter them to all these winds, and there will be no nation to which the outcast of Elam will not go. So I will shatter Elam before the enemies, their enemies, and before those who seek their lives, and I will bring calamity upon them. Even my fierce anger declares the Lord. So notice the relationship between the four winds and God's fierce anger. You know that term fierce anger that you see highlighted red on the screen? It comes from the Hebrew term ap. It literally has to do with the breath that comes out of his nostrils. And I always think of the charging bull. Remember in the cartoons when the charging bull was going to run at Bugs Bunny and he'd have a little red cape and he's going to be the manador? And there'd always be steam coming out of the, the nostrils of the bull. Well, God has that steam coming out too. He's angry. It has to do with his wrath. And so here these four winds are certainly in keeping with God's wrath being poured out in the book of Revelation as well. Now, let me just set the stage for Elam. What happened in Jeremiah's day was there was this nation in the southwest part of Iran that had some real power to it. But in 640 B.C., there was a man named Ashurbanipal, and he was a leader of Assyria, and he sacked Elam. Well, Elam recovered, and they ended up making a covenant or an agreement with the Babylonians. And so in 612 B.C., who remembers what major city was sacked in 612 B.C.? Well, it was Nineveh. Remember the Ninevites? Remember Jonah came to them, and they had repented for a while. They had seen reprieve from God. But then in 612 B.C., Elam joins forces with the Babylonians, and they sack the Assyrian capital. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, who comes later in Babylonian history, he becomes concerned by these people of Elam. And so what happens then is he ends up launching an attack and sacks them in the year 596 B.C. What's very interesting is the prophecy here before you in Jeremiah 49 is written just two years prior. 
So here God was saying, and correctly so, in advance that yes, Elam would in fact be judged, and that's exactly what happened. So now, when we get to the book of Revelation, he's saying, look, he's going to pour out his four winds of wrath again upon the world. Now, why am I pointing this out? Remember, I talk about in the Old Testament, you have these mini days of the Lord. And these mini days of the Lord in the Old Testament are a foreshadowing or a down payment of the ultimate reality that's going to occur in the 70th week of Daniel. So when you see all these different judgments in the Old Testament of these different nations, always think of them as down payments, that one day God is going to do this on a worldwide scale. And sure enough, that's why John is building so many of these prophecies off of what you see in the Old Testament. I think that that's how we should think of it. Now, notice what these angels do then. They hold back the four winds. The term hold back there, krateo, means to seize onto something. They're holding on to something, seizing something, and that would be the wrath of God so it does not continue. But what I want you to see is there's another purpose statement there to hold back the four winds of the earth. Notice it says, so that no wind would blow. Now, let me make a a technical grammatical point, but I think it's relevant here. When you see the phrase, so that no wind would blow, you actually have what's called a present subjunctive. Okay, subjunctive is a mood. You and I often talk in the indicative mood. But the subjunctive mood, when it's used with the present tense, according to the leading Greek scholar of the 20th century, A.T. Robertson, he says that the present tense with the subjunctive mood is used by John to show continuity. So another way of rendering this would be that they were to hold back the four winds of the earth lest the wind would keep blowing. That's a way you could also render that phrase. Now, why would that be significant? Well, it would indicate then that these four winds were already blowing, okay, meaning that the God's wrath had already been poured out. And then what's required is a temporary restraint until you see a marked increase in the intensity of that wind. Because in other words, when God pours out his wrath later, it's going to become so intense that even his elect would feel the effects of it. So it's not that the winds had not been blowing prior, but there's a temporary restraint because of the market increase in them. Now, notice what the wrath of God is going to affect. It's going to be the earth, the sea, and the trees. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, if you will. I'm going to show you when we come to the first two trumpet judgments, you'll see, in fact, that the earth, the tree, and the sea sea, are indeed affected by this wrath that's going to be poured out. Again, Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. So remember, we're between what? We're at the seventh seal. So the seventh seal opens up to the six trumpets. But before the six trumpets come, you have this interlude. Okay, So you have a protection of God's elect before you have an intensification of his wrath. So Revelation 8, 6 through 9 talks about how the earth, the sea, and the tree will be affected. It says, And the seven angels, this is Revelation 8, 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. And it says, And a third of the earth was burned up. So let's stop there. Notice a third of the earth was burned up at the first trumpet. Does everybody see that? So sure enough, that's in keeping with 
what's being stated here at the seventh seal. All right? Now, notice it continues then that the earth had been burned up, and it says a third of the trees were also burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. That's the end of verse 7. So now we have the trees affected as well. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 8. The second angel sounded. So now we have the second trumpet. It says, And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. So now you have the sea being affected, right? And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had, who had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So you can see that the opening trumpet judgments then are going to affect the very things that these angels are referring to that are to protect. Okay, yeah, Brian. A third of the ships would be destroyed. I've always found that interesting. If you go to all the navies yeah. throughout the uh, world, there's thousands upon tens of thousands of ships. Yeah. And for a third of those ships to be wiped out is just uh, fantastic. It, it, you're right. There are a lot of boats, aren't there? <laughs> ships, technically, yes. I mean, there are there are a lot. And it's not just the navies. It's the merchant vessels you're right it's going to be oodles and oodles of ships right um we remember all the the exxon valdez when that sank and it was such an ecological disaster well it's going to be on steroids then yeah a third of the ships yep very very bad uh, stuff now again these angels are to temporarily restrain these devastating forces until the 144,000 are indeed sealed so we want to keep moving then in verses two through three where John, and he continues to see the progression of this, he says, And I saw another angel. So this is another angel. Ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, what's very interesting in this passage is notice it says that this angel who is giving this message of protection, it says that he is ascending from the rising of the sun. Now, one of the things we have to ask about, I think, here is is the rising of the sun significant or is it something that we can just blow off and say we don't really know what John means? Well, let's ans- answer the question is this rising of the sun significant? I think it is. Now, here's why. What's very interesting is you'll find out, oftentimes in Scripture, salvation is depicted as coming from the east. Okay, so there's salvation that this angel is giving, in a sense, that is protection of God's elect. But what's very interesting is this phrase, Antele, the rising of the sun to the east, is used one other time in the book of Revelation, and it has to do with the setting of the stage for the battle of Armageddon. Notice here in Revelation 16, 12, the same phrase is used. This is the sixth angel of the sixth bowl. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river of the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, it doesn't look like that's the same phrase, but it's identical. Literally, this phrase from the east is from the rising of the sun. It's identical. Now, at that sixth trumpet judgment, these kings that are coming from the east, they're being gathered by God for that final battle that culminates 
at the hill of Megiddo. In the plains of Megiddo where all the nations are going to be gathered and they will end up surrounding Jerusalem. This is a fulfillment of what Zechariah had promised in Zechariah 14 where all the nations would surround Jerusalem. But then who comes when all the nations surround Jerusalem? Jesus. And where does he set his feet? On the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of Jerusalem. And so you have this idea of even though judgment and wrath is coming from the east, salvation is accompanied with it. And so that's a theme that we're going to see all the way through the scriptures, that salvation of Yahweh when it's related to the Messiah is often salvation that comes from the east. And I think it really is a theme that's there. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to show you this theme, that salvation comes from the east. That's a, a biblical concept. And it all relates to the Messiah coming to the Mount of Olives and saving Israel and therefore his people from the east. It all points to that. And what we're going to do is we're going to relate that then to the angel. The reason the angel comes from the area of the rising sun is because he's being used by Jesus for the protection of those who are sealed. Is everyone with me? So let's begin with Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Here it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden where he placed the man whom he had formed. So here, where is the garden? Well, it's to the east, okay? And then when you get to Genesis chapter 3, you have the tree of life, which is the, in the eastern part of the garden, which is to the east. And very interestingly enough, of course, in Genesis 3.24, God puts his cherubim there to protect people from getting access to that tree of life. Well, where do we see access to the tree of life restored? In Revelation chapter 22. In the New Jerusalem, there's access again to the tree of life. So anyway, there's an indication that there was salvation, there was paradise to the east. Now, when we get into the prophets, oftentimes God shows us that redemption and salvation would come from the east. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41, verses 2 through 4. Again, Isaiah 41, verses 2 through 4. Here was encouragement that was given to Israel because they could know, even though God's judgment was going to come upon them, relief would too. Salvation would come. And as we see here, salvation is going to come from the east. Isaiah 41, 2 through 4. Here's the question that's asked. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been transversing by his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he." Now, the one who comes, notice in verse 2 here of Isaiah 41, the one who comes from the east is probably Cyrus, the Medo-Persian ruler. And how does he bring salvation for God's people? Well, because the Israelis were in Babylonian captivity, Cyrus was God's anointed, who he brings from the east to sack Babylon, and the Israelites are allowed to go back home. Now, if you recall, in Isaiah 44 and 45, Cyrus is called a Mashiach. He's called an anointed one. 
And in some sense, he's an anointed one that brings salvation. But who is the ultimate anointed one that brings salvation for God's people? It's, it's Messiah, it's Jesus, isn't it? And so he is also going to come from the east. Okay, so now what I want you to do is turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11. I want you to see this idea of the east and its connection to the Messiah. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. Remember, God is very angry with the sins of Israel. And he's so angry with their idolatry, he's going to leave. His glory is going to leave the temple. And which way does it go? Well, we see here in Ezekiel eleven twenty-three. It says, The glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. So the idea then is God is angry, his glory leaves the temple, and it goes out to the Mount of Olives, which is to the east of the city, and then he ascends up from there. The glory of Yahweh departed. But what's very interesting is later in Ezekiel 43, the great promise is one day the glory of Yahweh is going to return from the same direction. He's going to come back to the temple, and he's coming back from the east. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 2. It says, Then he led me to the gate. So this is Ezekiel being led to the gate by an angel. The gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And so there's this expectation then in the Old Testament that the glory of God is going to come from the way of the east and he's going to come back to the temple. And sure enough, when you come to the New Testament, you see this expectation manifested in Jesus Christ. Notice in Matthew 2, 2, the Magi, they were instructed in the Old Testament. They knew something of the scriptures. And notice it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so there was this expectation that Messiah has a sign that comes by the way of the east. Now, let's fast forward in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23, you have Jesus very angry with the leadership of Israel. And remember in Matthew 23, he's in the temple with them, and he says to them, For I say to you, your, he says, Behold, your house has left you desolate, so it's being abandoned again. This is Matthew 23, 38. Now, what is that reminiscent of? When Jesus, who is God's glory, is going to leave the temple desolate, it reminds you of Ezekiel 11. Yahweh had departed the temple in the days of Ezekiel because of the idolatry of Israel. Well, now Jesus is doing the same thing. And in verse 39, he says, You will not, say, say, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a second coming promise with Psalm 118.26. Well, then where does Jesus go? He goes out to the Mount of Olives, and he gives his Olive a discourse. Now, back in Ezekiel 11, where did Yahweh depart after he was fed up with the idolatry of Israel? Well, he left to the Mount of Olives, didn't he? Where does Jesus ascend to in Acts 1? He ascends from the Mount of Olives. Remember the angels say to the Disciples, men of Galilee, why do you get skyward? The same Jesus coming back in like manner. 
And so Jesus is going to come back from heaven to the Mount of Olives, and he brings salvation from the east. That's the imagery that we see over and over and over in the scriptures. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke 178. I want to show you a reference to the same phrase in Zechariah's prophecy. Remember the son of, or the father rather, of John the Baptist. He's giving this prophecy, Luke 178. Luke 178, Zacharias in his prophecy, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. The term sunrise there is antole. It's the same term that's used in the Revelation 7-2 passage that we had looked at, the rising of the sun from the east. And so this ties into this idea that in the consummation of the messianic age, you have the dawning of a new day. A dawning of the day where, the gods, where God's people will live in security. A day that will dawn where God's people will live in Jerusalem and around the world in unwalled villages, and they will no longer be under threat anymore. Why? Because the living God has brought salvation to them. And so all of these ideas are incorporated into the rising of the sun. In fact, this is what Peter, I think, is alluding to in 2 Peter 1.19. But before I go on, we had a question, I think. Oh, good, good. Let me back up. On the sunrise. Yeah. Um, in, in Malachi chapter 4, it, it's clearly a messianic reference. It says, But unto you that fear my name shall the sun of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Beautiful. Thank you. Excellent. Yes, it's the same idea. Well said, uh, Dana. And that incorporates this idea of his first advent, but also the second advent, the consummation. It's both in what are true. When, when, in his triumphal entry, he entered Jerusalem from the east. Exactly. And then when he returns, he's going to ascend to the Mount of Olives, descend to the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So it's exactly. Same. Beautiful. Now, uh, before you go, uh, keep the microphone for just a moment. Talk a little bit about, I know you know about these things with archaeology, the gate on the east side, the eastern gate. Well, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. I mean... The, the, the Muslims sealed that up, thinking yeah. that that would prevent the Messiah from com- coming in that gate. Well, right. that's not going to stop him. But. <laughs> yeah. Then what happened when they were going to... Uh, wasn't there a time, too, where they were going to break that down? Uh, was that also true? Then I heard... Uh, break what down? They were going to break down the eastern gate and uh, punch a hole through it as well? Who, who was going to? The, the Muslims were. Was that going to happen in history? I don't. I'm not okay. I just know that they sealed it up, trying, hoping that that would stop the Messiah. Yeah. Okay. And, and also, <laughs> all, all, all over graves. That, yeah, the graves on, on the hillside there. They, they thought that would stop him too. Yeah. So. And does everybody know why they would put graves there to try to stop the Messiah? Because in Leviticus, a Levitical priest would be defiled by being around a dead body, right? Well, isn't it interesting? Christ isn't from the tribe of. Uh, the, the Levites, is he, he's from what tribe? The tribe of Judah. But he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, isn't he? And of course, when Jesus comes in contact in his earthly ministry with the dead and those who are decaying, he brings life instead of them bring, bringing decay and bringing uncleanness upon him. He's the one who has such power. He brings uncleanness. So all of this is tied in to this idea of coming from the way of the East. Thank you very much. Now, um, let me continue on. I want to show you that this is a theme that we see also in the epistles. 
uh, in 2 Peter. Now, before I read this passage, let me just set the stage for you so it makes sense because I know we're jumping from book to book. The big issue in the book of 2 Peter is you had false teachers who were simply saying, Jesus is not coming. You apostles have the wrong interpretation. There is no second coming. Therefore, we can live a licentious lifestyle. So let me just stop there for a moment. Think about in our day and age. People are living more and more a licentious lifestyle. Why? Because they don't believe Jesus is coming back. Okay? So the more you see immorality in our culture, the more you are convinced that people don't believe that Jesus is coming back. Well, what Peter has to do is he has to say, no, we apostles do have the right interpretation. Jesus is coming back. And proof of it is seen in the fact that when we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, we heard from on high God himself say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, that was in the Mount of Transfiguration. Those are two passages. One is from Deuteronomy 18. Remember Moses says, from your own brethren, God is going to raise up a prophet like me from your countrymen, and you must listen to him. If you don't, it's going to be required of you. But also it was a reference to Psalm 2-7. The beloved son is the one who's given the inheritance over all of the nations. Well, when Peter heard that, that yes, this Messiah, Jesus, is the beloved son who has the inheritance of all of the nations, what he reasoned is Jesus has to come back. Why? Because he has to reign over the nations. And so what he did then is he had his eschatology, I'm talking about Peter, he had it verified and his interpretation validated by God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what he's talking about here in verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1. That's why he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now let's stop there. What Peter isn't saying, he's not saying, well, look, the scriptures are really faulty and they're really incomplete unless we have extra experiences. Peter is not saying that. What Peter is saying is that we as apostles had the proper interpretation validated by the Mount of Transfiguration experience where God said, this is my beloved son. That's what he's saying. And so now the word of God, the interpretation of it has been secured. Jesus is coming back a second time. So that's what he means by this phrase. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Notice what he says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now let's stop there. What Peter was saying is that that's all you have. You have the word of God. The proper interpretation has been given to you, so you ought to pay attention to it like a shining lamp in a dark place. It's the only light you have. You know, years ago, um, I remember when I was a brand-new airline pilot, I was flying into a, a place called Thunder Bay into Ontario, and we were in really bad weather. I mean really bad. The ceiling was 100 feet. Now, technically, our DH, what's called the decision height, is 200 on an ILS approach, instrument landing system. But we're, what the limiting factor is is visibility. We can go down to a half mile. Well, sure enough, it was a half mile. Well, I'm brand new in the airplane, and it's my leg to fly, and I'm starting to sweat because this is going to be right on down there. And when you're down low and you're on the instruments, when you break out, you're doing 130 knots, about 140 miles an hour. And so you're going more than two miles a minute, and you just break out at 100 feet. The runway's right there, and you've got to get that thing down, right? Well, I remember I was flying with this captain, and he looked over at me, and he said, well, you better fly like you own it, not like you're making payments. 
So I like to use that with my son now. I say, you know, study that like you know it, not like you, or that you own it, not that you're making payments, right? You can use that. I, I think that that's a good way of phrasing. Well, the point is what I realized, there was a great spiritual application to it because my whole life was on this instrument panel. Everything else is dark. And if you rely upon your feelings, you'll go into the sea or into the water. We're over the Lake Superior. And so your whole life is on these instruments. And in the same way, our whole life, when it comes to the reality of salvation, of sin, of wrath, what's true and what's not true, it's all in the Bible. That's our instrument panel. I get to share that with people. Um, for example, we had a, somebody that we lost dearly, a dear loved one not too long ago that had died in our congregation, and I got to share that with the family to say, stay on your instrument panel because you're going to feel, where are the promises of God? My, my lost one is done. And, and, and go on. Yeah, Eric's got something. And so, but, but the point is the instrument panel is what we have, the Bible. And that's what uh, Peter's saying here. Yeah. Uh, so the Bible, you know, God uses that. But at the same time, isn't, I mean, the Bible doesn't give life. It only attests to life. So isn't our true strength, our true everything in Jesus? I mean, just not to trust in a man, I mean, in, in, in just words, but in God. Eric, what Jesus are you referring to? Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. How did you know about that he was from Nazareth? Through the Bible, through the Scripture, through the, through Bible. the Holy Spirit teaching me this. Okay, but so you knew it from the Bible. Which, what, else, what other things did Jesus do? Many miracles, many signs. How do you know that? Through the Holy Spirit revealing it to me through the Bible. From the Bible, right? Now, what did Jesus do on the cross for us? He paid my sins. How do you know that? Through the Holy Spirit, interpreting through the Bible. It's the Bible, right? So if you understand the Bible, you've heard from the Spirit, right? True, yes. The Spirit has inspired the Scriptures, right? Yes. So you know all the things that you know about who Jesus is from the Bible, right? Well, I would know nothing. I mean, it says these are spiritually discerned. So, Absolutely, through the, the Scriptures. So, in, for instance, Romans chapter 10, Paul says, How will they believe on the one whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And blessed is the feet of those who bring good tidings. So God uses means, doesn't he? He uses scripture. And so if you understand scripture, you understand the mind of the spirit. And that's why, for instance, Jesus can say in John chapter 17, he says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So if we get the word wrong, then we don't hear from the spirit. Does that make sense? You've stated backwards that the, if we understand Scripture, then we'll know the mind of the Spirit, whereas if we have the mind of the Spirit, then we'll understand Scripture. Well, the Spirit has to enable us to believe in the Scripture, right? Yeah. Yep. We see, for instance, in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Right. Right? Yeah. So there the Father is the one who's depicted as drawing one. But what are the means that the Father uses? Well, according to Titus 3, 5, it's the washing of regeneration which is an allusion back to ezekiel 31 or excuse me jeremiah 31 and ezekiel 36 which is the regeneration by the spirit so certainly the spirit is the one who brings us to believe and once we believe we have the spirit then we're able to what believe in the promises of god and then glean from the scriptures right but you can't divorce a true interpretation of scripture from the work of the spirit Right. And that was the problem that we had last week, right? Because remember, Paul said it was my spirit, but you were insisting that it was God's spirit. Well, that's not what Paul penned. And Paul was the one who was inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. So you and I aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Paul was. So if we say, well, no, Paul was wrong, then we're the apostle, not the apostle Paul. We're making ourselves to be apostles and prophets, right? Well, not stating that Paul was wrong, but that God, it, it, one the gift of the Spirit is teaching. So if Paul then is allowed to teach, isn't it God who teaches? Yeah, well, we have, to, we have to get back here, but does that, does that make sense? We'll have to talk more about this later with you and me, but um, let's get back to the text, though, here. So, yeah, Peter, well, we got to get the microphone for you. Uh, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. Doesn't it kind of relate to some extent yeah, to John that? Yeah, John 1, 1, amen. Yep, the word incarnate. So that's a great point. So the Jesus is the word. He's the word incarnate. He's the word made flesh. So think, who is Jesus? Well, he's truly man. He's truly God. Well, when scripture comes to us, it's written by a man. It's written by the apostle Paul. But it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy three fifteen through 17. So the Word of God is truly man and truly God. It really is written by Paul. His personality is really being used. He's really writing what he wants to write, yet it's the very words that God had inspired through the Holy Spirit. So just as Jesus as the God-man, Scripture is of God and it's of man. So the point is, if I don't get Paul's point right, I'm missing what the Holy Spirit said. So when Paul says, my spirit, and I say, well, no, it's actually God's spirit, well, then I'm getting Paul wrong. And if I'm getting Paul wrong, I'm getting the Holy Spirit wrong, and now I'm asserting myself above the Holy Spirit. So that's how we have to think of Scripture. So, yeah, very good point, Peter. Well thought out. Yeah, Steve. To find the, the word is. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. I'll stay away from that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll stay away from that one. <laughs> This kind of yeah. further complicates the uh, discussion you're having with Eric, Eric and Eric. But uh, how does one that has brain injury or that can't reason, I'm not assuming you know the answer, that, or there, is, there is one answer, but how would a person without the hardware of the brain come to the Holy Spirit and come to Jesus? Yeah, I, I think that it is given to people by God, the ability to believe. Um, one thing we have to remember, like, for instance, a lot of times people ask me about babies, babies who have died, and they'll say, well, the baby can't believe in the Bible. They're not sophisticated enough. And we have to assume, yes, the scriptures were not written for infants, right? They're written for adults. And so what we have to do is to say, look, what God has revealed to us, we're responsible for. How God saves infants, I don't know. That's something that we can trust in him because why? His character, God's character, has been revealed in scripture and I can trust a good, righteous, and just God to do that which is right. But I'm only responsible for what's been revealed. And so in that case, I don't know. I can just say, look, I don't know. Yeah. Yep. We got another question. Um, I'm sorry, Brian, do you have your microphone? Yeah. We got one more up here. Oh, that's right. We get it on tape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One more, and then we'll, we'll get back to this here. Just in reference to what was just at, what that person just asked. Yeah. Um, I read a book by Helen Keller. Yeah. That she wrote herself. And one of the things that stuck with me was that being deaf and blind and dumb, when she learned how to read, 
and she read scripture. She said, relating to Jesus, I knew him, but I didn't know his name. Mm. How could the Holy Spirit have revealed himself to her sure. who couldn't hear, couldn't speak, yeah. couldn't understand language, and yet the Holy Spirit could reach her sure. innermost being? So that's yeah. an answer to that. God yeah. can do whatever he's got. You're, you're right. God can do whatever because he's got. Again, we're only given what we're given in scripture so i'm just going to say look i know what scripture reveals and paul was so adamant that those who did not know christ and heard his preaching uh didn't have an opportunity to be saved that he says how will they believe unless they are you know someone preaches and how will they preach unless they are sent um, we look at romans 120 all are without excuse because of the general revelation what we may know about god but what's interesting in revelation 120 what we can know through general revelation only gives us enough revelation to hang ourselves because those who did not come to Christ through the gospel, they end up becoming idolaters and they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. And so, yes, um, I'm sure that God works in all sorts of ways. I'm just telling you what the Bible reveals, and that's what we're responsible for. Yep. So, yeah, so let's get back to the text then. And what I want to do then is relate this until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Notice where the term arises is. Again, that's the term antole, the idea of the rising of the sun to the east. And so what Peter's saying here is that you have to pay attention to the scriptures from which you have the promises of God and his coming until that day dawns and that morning star actually comes. In fact, Thomas Schreiner says it this way. He says, quote, when Jesus comes, we will not need the prophetic word to shine in a dark place, the sinful world. Then our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself, and that to which prophecy points will have arrived. It is not incompatible, he goes on to say, to speak of an eschatological event and its interior impact. And then he cites another scholar named Colley. He says, Colley rightly emphasizes that the knowledge of God that shines upon us in conversion will reach its consummation at the second coming. And sure enough, what's very interesting is what does Jesus refer to himself as in Revelation 22:16? He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so the conception in the Bible then is Jesus is coming, this bright morning star. And when he comes, a new day dawns, the great day where the people of God will be saved. And so, brothers and sisters, I think that that's a long answer as to why it is that this angel arises in the, the area of the setting sun, or the rising sun, I should say, the area of the east, because that's the direction of messianic salvation in the scripture. So I think that that's the answer to that question. But I think when we look at this theme broadly, we also see that, look, the people of God, you and I who trust in Jesus, we have security, not because of government, that's what the world trusts in today, but because of who Christ is. Security and salvation is of Yahweh, and he has the ability then to protect his people, including the 144,000 here that are going to be sealed for protection. Revelation 7, 2 through 3, let's read it again. He says, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. That's to the east. That's where salvation comes, salvation, messianic salvation at the very end. Having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, and here's the 
The call then, it's do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So notice the seal. The seal here shows us a great contrast. It's the seal of God. The term here is phragis, which has to do with ownership. And so these 144,000 Jews are those who belong to Jesus. They belong to God. And so because they belong to God, they are not going to be harmed by his coming wrath. In fact, who has a Bible that's open who wouldn't mind reading? I don't want to show you how this term sphragis, sealed, is used elsewhere. Paul, you have one? Great. And Peter, great. Uh, Peter, you turn your Bible, if you would, to Ephesians 4.30. And would you, uh, Paul, turn it to John 6.37? Or, I'm sorry, John 6.27. And again, I'm going to show you how this term sealed is used elsewhere. And you're going to see that it has to do with ownership and this idea of being sealed with an official seal that promises protection. John 637? Uh, 627. 627. Yep. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Yeah, so there's the sphragis, the seal is upon Jesus. So Jesus is his unique son, the only begotten, and he is the one who belongs to the Father in this unique way. So when we trust in Jesus, then we belong to the Son who belongs to the Father. That would be the idea there. Ephesians 4.30 as well. This is not about not grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So the idea is that we belong to God, and therefore our eternal security is, in fact, safe. That's the idea. Now, that's contrasted then later in the book of Revelation with the mark. The term in Greek is karagma. Revelation 13, verses 16 through 17. This is the mark that's given to those who belong to the Antichrist. To the beast. Revelation 13, verses 16 through 17, it says, And he causes all, this is the beast, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and slaves, to be given a mark, karagma, on their right hand or their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except that one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So, what we can conclude then is there really is an either or. In the scriptures, you either have the seal of God or you are going to have the mark of the beast. It's one or the other. And you belong to one or the other. Remember Bob taught us in Colossians 1.13 that when we came to faith, we were delivered out of the domain of darkness and placed where? Into the kingdom of the beloved son. Now, this is important because when I was in seminary, we had a man who began the orientation lecture by saying there is no either or in scripture. There's He said, we have to stop binary reductionism now. And uh, talk about a movement to be excited about, right? (laughs) Stop binary reductionism now. What he meant is we can't have either or. But the Bible's filled with either or. You're either the sheep or you're the goats. You're either in the domain of darkness or in the kingdom of the beloved son. You're either going to have the seal or the mark. The Bible is binary. And the reason why people don't want to have that is because they want to have ultimate reconciliation and no wrath of God. Because if you don't have the wrath of God, then you don't need the the cross of Christ. 
And if you don't need the cross of Christ, then you don't, really don't need God's plan of salvation. Therefore, you have a works-based salvation. That's what it's all about. They are going to build Babylon. God brings the new Jerusalem. He does it by his grace. Men are going to build Babylon by their works. That's what the battle is really all about. Okay, now let's keep going here. I'm going to show you the Old Testament background to this. Again, anytime we see something in Revelation, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. About 85% or 90% of them have a reference or an allusion to the Old Testament. Here in Ezekiel 9, verses 4 through 6, God, before he destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., he also had an angel place a seal on the heads of his elect to protect them from his outpouring of wrath. This is what it said. Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6, it said, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you will start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. So before the wrath of God was poured out, way back in 586 B.C., you had the mark, God's mark, come upon his elect. And the same thing then happens at the seventh seal in Revelation chapter 7, before further wrath comes in the judgments that we see. So what we can conclude then is God is faithful to his promises. Verse 4, John continues, he says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, next time when we get into this passage, we'll cover verses 5 through 8. And what we want to do is labor on who is the identity or what is the identity of these 144,000. And what I'm going to show you is that it certainly has to do with Israel. It's not the church. The church has not replaced Israel. This is, in fact, Israel. That's the most natural way of understanding it. And so what we have, then, is a fulfillment of the promises. In fact, Paul talked about this fulfillment of the promise to protect Israel and that they would always belong to God as a nation forever. Romans 11:25 through 26, I like the net Bible here. Paul said, for I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Now let's stop there. This is important for our discussions today. What's a mystery? Well, a mystery was something that was formerly concealed, but according to Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 5, it's now revealed. But who is it revealed by? Is it revealed subjectively through our feelings, directly by the Holy Spirit? Well, no, that would make us have immediate contact with God. But instead, it was revealed to the apostles and prophets. So these mysteries are given to them by the Spirit, and then they reveal it to us in Scripture. And so you and I, brothers and sisters, don't have an immediate contact with God. We have a mediated contact with God. We have a mediator. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is the only mediator between God and man. He's the Word, right? Truly man, truly God. Well, the Word of God, the Bible, is also our mediator. It's truly man and truly of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it also gives us a mediated experience or mediated contact with God as well. Okay, so when he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, they're not going to be ignorant. Why? Because Paul's going to explain it to them. He says, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. He's talking to Gentiles. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove 
ungodliness from Jacob. Notice then this partial hardening has happened to Israel, and he says, until what? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The term there, until Akri, is a timing indicator. He's saying, look, this partial hardening that resides upon Israel is until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Well, when does that happen? Well, more than likely at the outbreaking of the 70th week of Daniel. At the 70th week of Daniel, prior to that, during the church age, you have primarily Gentiles being saved with a few Jews. But in the 70th week of Daniel, perhaps it reverses and you have the majority Jews being saved with a, prime, with a smaller number of Gentiles. We can't be sure of the numbers. But we can know is that God is going to be faithful to spare Israel as a nation. In fact, notice he says in verse 26, and we'll spend more time on this when we get to this text in our Roman study. But when it says, and so all Israel will be saved, it literally is in this way, in this manner. So what Paul's revealing is the manner in which Israel will come to faith. They will only come to faith as a nation when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, then he is, as it says in Zechariah 12, is going to pour out the spirit of supplication and mourning upon the nation of Israel. We know here in verse 26 that all Israel is indeed the nation of Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, because some replacement theologians will claim that Israel here is the church. Now, here's a way of defeating that argument. If you, I don't have it on the screen. I maybe should have put another screen up. But notice in verse 28 of Romans 11, Paul talks about all Israel. He says, they are enemies of the gospel for your sake. Well, could every, if, if, let's just take our replacement theologian's argument. If they're claiming that all Israel is the church, believers, Jews and Gentiles, well, then how could they be enemies of the gospel in verse 28 of Romans 11? Because obviously the church is not enemies of the gospel. If you're an enemy of the gospel, well, then you're not part of the church. And so certainly then all Israel had to be ethnic Israel that was in rebellion against God because it didn't come to faith in Jesus. So we know, therefore, that this interpretation of all Israel being the nation is, in fact, a solid one exegetically. So certainly all Israel is the nation. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful to his promises. He said that the one day in Ezekiel 36, he promised that the son of David would reign over Israel for how long? Forever. We see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, that the people of God were going to be a priest, as Bob has been showing us in his Sunday school, and we'd be priests who reign where? On the earth. Where's the headquarters going to be of the kingdom? It's not going to be in Minnesota or Minneapolis. It's going to be in Jerusalem, and it's going to reign over the entire world, and therefore the God's people will have peace, and they will have salvation. So God is faithful to his promises. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you're a God who is so powerful that in the midst of trial and tribulation and wrath, that you can spare those that you've chosen, that you can protect them for your purposes. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would realize as a people that our safety is not found in government. Government isn't God, but you alone are the mighty God who saves. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the gospel to preach upon our lips. Give us boldness to do so, so that others may know the salvation that comes from the east, from Jerusalem this mighty king who will reign there, that they will know that this Jesus is king of all. We pray, Lord, you give us opportunity and regenerate hearts before us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.